0: You're listening to Making Waves from the University of Portsmouth. I'm Trudy Monk. In this podcast, we meet Portsmouth graduates who drive positive change in their communities and around the world. As they share their journeys, you'll be struck by an overriding drive in each and every one to make a difference in the lives of others. In the past year, the pandemic has brought health and well-being into sharp focus. At the University of Portsmouth, These themes have long been reflected in our research, teaching and community engagement. We're proud of the contribution our research makes to understanding and addressing health challenges, especially now, and equally proud of the many Portsmouth students who enter and complete health-related programmes in order to meet the needs they see in their communities and beyond. In this series, we meet six graduates who are at the forefront of advancing health across a number of sectors, professions and locales. Whilst not all of them work in healthcare per se, all share a passion for enhancing well-being in our society. Like the university where they studied, these graduates are finding solutions to health challenges. There's no question that the alumni featured here are innovators in their fields. They have found a way to combine their work with their passion to contribute. We hope their stories inspire you. Wherever you are, whatever you do. Today, we find out how a Portsmouth business and finance graduate is using his unique skills to tackle humanitarian challenges and improve lives in some of the world's poorest countries. Lawrence Mottram shares with us his journey towards helping communities fight hunger and promote health.
1: Big entities such as the World Bank are loaning money to these countries, but the interest rates are so high that and the, the countries are so poor that they're never going to be able to break out of that cycle of, of debt and poverty.
2: My degree was in business and finance. So I initially started working as a finance analyst um, for a management consultancy in London. Um, so yeah, did that for, for, for four years and then worked for another year and a half in another um, organisation in the private sector, again, doing work as a finance analyst. Um, but kind of over that period of time, I started to realize that my interests lay more towards uh you yeah, working in the charity sector and in international development um so um having had five five or six years of a really useful experience in finance um which also helped me to save a little bit of uh, money to be able to kind of do a career change, I shifted across to the international development sector. So um actually my first role in the sector was um last it began last summer. So I'm actually only a year and a half in. Um and this is my second role. So my first my first job in the sector was with a smaller NGO called Health Poverty Action. Um quite similar to Action Against Hunger and and yeah that's that's where I am now. Um
3: so what were you doing um, at the, the the first charity that you worked for?
2: Um, so, well, both both roles have been kind of similar, actually. Okay. So um, what I'm doing currently uh, with Action Against Hunger is I uh, work uh, within the operations department. Um, so um, that is... Uh, one of the largest functions at the organisation, it basically kind of facilitates the, the projects that we actually run on the ground. Um, so there's different parts of the ops department, the ops team, um, and I sit within the programme funding team. Um, so our our kind of main function is to work between the um, programme teams that we have in country, so the teams that are actually de- implementing the projects on the ground in the in developing countries, so countries in the Global South um, and for Action Against Hunger, that's um, across Africa and Asia and South America and Central America as well. Um, so we work between them and uh, with also the institution that is um, providing the finance for the projects, which uh, institutional donors, uh, we call them in the sector. Um, so we kind of support the country teams to ensure that they are able to, they have everything they need to be able to implement the projects that we're running, um, and also um, communicate between them and the, um, the donor, which for Action Against Hunger is mostly uh, the UK government department, um, Was formerly differed, but it's now called the FCDO, which is um, Foreign and Commonwealth Development.
3: Office.
2: Mm-hmm. I think. Um, so uh, basically, they have they have plans for projects that they want to run, and um, we yeah in the UK we kind of work between them and the and the country team to facilitate that, uh, also to to uh, manage that donor relationship, um, which involves kind of sending various reports on updates on the project how it's going if we're meeting certain indicators that the government are interested in, in terms of improving health and various other uh, factors that are going into the project. Um, and, um, yeah, and then, like I say, supporting the countries to be able to do their job. Uh, we also, in within our team, uh, develop proposals to try and um, receive further funding. Um, so... Yeah, that involves kind of searching online and working with our contacts to make sure that we um, we know about all of the opportunities that are coming out for future projects. And then once we do, to put put forward our best application um, if it's relevant to us and if we've got the right expertise to make sure that we um, yeah that we're putting forward like a really comprehensive application so that we can uh, get future funding, basically. Um, and then my specific role is a little bit more focused on kind of coordinating within the team um, and also these two big networks that we work within, uh, which are primarily focused on uh, emergency humanitarian response. Um, so that's the START Fund and the Disasters and Emergencies Committee. So they're two different um, set of entities uh, where and M- different NGOs, most of the main NGOs basically, um, kind of pull together and respond to uh, crises that are happening, like, every day, basically. Mm. Um, so we have, we have experts on each, uh, between all of the different organisations, we have experts in most different countries that um, usually are impacted by crisis. And as soon as those crises happen, and sometimes actually before, um, they're, they're kind of pre, pre-alerts from some of the experts on the ground, they send us all of the information about what's going to happen, and then we kind of coordinate between the NGOs and with these central kind of bodies to coordinate um, like a response within uh, a really short period of time. So, with the Start Fund, for example, from from being alerted to what's happening to having actually the project beginning is done within seventy-two hour period, which is uh, I still find quite amazing. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, one of my main roles with uh, then actually action against Hunger is kind of coordinating all of the communication on that and making sure that the administrative parts of the job are, are done as
0: necessary.
3: Yeah, that sounds that sounds uh, that sounds pretty full on, but um, it must be it must be very um, fulfilling and interesting, I'm sure. Um, and how how has your sort of degree and your sort of past experience um, in, in in finance helped you um, mm. do your role?
2: Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, as I said before, um, yeah, getting my degree in finance uh, really allowed me to kind of get onto the career ladder. And in those five or six years that I've worked in finance, I was able to develop, um, yeah, a series of different, Skills in finance that really are quite valued, I think, um, in the development sector, especially in the type of work I'm doing now in programmes, because there is a lot of um, budgets to be reviewed and financial reporting uh, and kind of, yes, financial admin processes that are really vital to making sure projects can function. Um, So... Yeah, the, the kind of experience I, I got in finance over those few years, um, which initially came from being able to get there through my through my finance degree at Portsmouth, they, they actually really were the main factor that I was able to shift my kind of career direction um, because a lot of the organisations look for that kind of practical, technical experience. Um, it's a very, very competitive sector, which I found out uh, as a, as as I was coming into it um and uh yeah hundreds of applications just a very very uh low entry level roles like internships and things like that so having having that finance background was was really make or break for me being able to get into the sector in the first place um yeah and and having the degree itself obviously allowed me to get that first role in in working life and uh, set me on my path, and also, you know, is is quite um a reliable uh, career to go into with finance. There's always a lot of jobs available, and mm. obviously, you can you can um, work your way through and 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 <laughs> receive a salary that is useful to be able to have a bit more freedom in in life and having being able to make decisions about where you want to take your career and what you want to do in your personal life so yeah my degree without that uh yeah i'm not sure i wouldn't not sure i would have been able to make it to this point
3: gonna no well it's it, as i say it sounds absolutely fascinating so obviously as you say the the, the, the charity you work for um is action against hunger uh, which obviously okay. has a, a great um bearing on health and wellness but can you can you give any sort of specific examples of of projects you've worked on that you can you can sort of see the difference you've made to to people's health and wellness
1: as i'm quite new action against hunger i haven't worked directly too much on projects i'll use some examples from my previous um organization uh which was health poverty action Uh, my focus at health poverty action was mostly on projects in two countries and that's um Sierra Leone and West Africa, and Somaliland, which is in uh, East Africa. Um, And the main kind of function of the projects um, that we had in Sierra Leone was to work with the really um, local level, from from the local level health structures all the way up to the Ministry of Health, which is the main central kind of health structure within the country. Um, So our projects were... Uh, one of the main focuses on our projects would be to work with uh, community health workers um, and these are um kind of representatives in um, the, on the community level that are there to be kind of a first point of contact um for for community members to go to when they've got health problems so a similar kind of comparison would be to have a gp here but obviously in in the Global South, in countries where there aren't, health structures aren't as developed. um, These are kind of the bottom level health structures that they have. Um, So our projects would primarily uh, work with these community health workers and train them in certain areas of health. So for example, we ran projects where they were being trained on uh, malaria prevention um, and how how they can, um, yeah, the first point of contact in their communities to understand the symptoms of malaria and the different ways that you can prevent prevent malaria such as using bed nets and um clearing away pools of stagnant water which can attract a lot of mosquitoes um and uh, another example was uh, in nutrition so we had a project where we were training the health workers um Uh, Yeah, various different uh, kind of community engagement programs where they were able to teach the communities about um, do's and don'ts of nutrition, especially around maternal and um, infant health. Um, So that was around things uh, such as breastfeeding and the importance of that. Um, and uh, yeah, looking out for signs of various um, malnutrition or diseases or um, yeah other issues of health. So um, yeah, we worked with that community health worker structure, uh, and then we also kind of work with the more institutional health structures within those countries. So then beyond that, they have health facilities where there are trained. Uh, trained nurses and doctors uh, and health workers, so we make sure that the relationship between the community health workers who are often very remote uh, and in areas that are really hard to reach, potentially with poor roads, um, and can take hours of walking or driving to get there, between them and the health facilities that are often in more kind of city areas in the country, um, and make sure that they're working together, uh, they're coordinating to make sure that health data is collected and gathered so that we can understand where there are gaps or where there are issues in certain areas of the country. Uh, and then also working with the Ministry of Health, which is the kind of central government body um, to yeah, encourage kind of certain health structures and practices to, uh, to improve, improve the overall health response in the country, basically. Um, but yeah, um, with both Health Poverty Action and Action Against Hunger, um, there is kind of a, a much wider remit of work they also get involved in, so like I mentioned earlier, Action Against Hunger quite heavily focused on humanitarian uh, emergency response to crisis, so that's, um, it is health related because it's about supplying uh, food in, in to communities that may not have it if there's flooding and things like that, and also to encourage uh, or support on different health issues that may arise from a crisis such as overcrowding which is happening uh, to be quite a big issue with COVID at the moment so when this um, recently there was a, a hurricane in Central America it was kind of low level in the media which everything else is nowadays um, but that really impacted some countries in South America in Central America and yeah, it, if people have to leave their homes and go to kind of a church or a community center to be able to get some sort of shelter, there was obviously um, kind of a health experts in country anticipating that lots of people would be crowded in small areas and then that would be a massive um, kind of spread, super spreader event for COVID. So um, yeah, that was, yeah, kind of the response that we have in, in, in humanitarian response at the moment. Um, but then there are also other areas that we, that these kind of NGOs work in. So for example, mental health, uh, projects that are focused on gender uh, equality um, and kind of gender empowerment programs um, in communities. And yeah, and also kind of advocacy projects. And um, there, there was another one with Health Property Action we did that was called Civic Engagement. And it was um, getting women and girls to getting is not the right one, sorry <laughs> working with women and girls uh to uh have more of a voice in their community and um also to kind of advocate for their own rights uh going forward to their local government and to kind of community heads which are often male uh, in those communities um so yeah there's like a really kind of wide a wider scope it's not always related exactly to health um but yeah um kind of a wide range of different projects that they do.
3: So so would you say it's sort of, it's a mix of that emergency response and getting what they need on the ground as quickly as possible, but also about going into, into communities and working with organisations mm. to enable them to, to help themselves going forward?
1: Mm, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so there's yeah, definitely two kind of different um, project types. One is the kind of short-term humanitarian response you're literally going into supply, supply life, life-saving support. Um, where yeah, you simply don't have the time to um, kind of come up with more sustainable support. It's it's just it's just responding to a crisis. Um, you can do planning for that kind of thing in terms of setting up sustainable plans in communities for earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and things like that. Um, but yeah, the, there's that one type of project which is very short-term focus and yeah, responding directly to a crisis and then the other type of project which is usually um, yeah, several years long, uh, between three and five years often, and um, has a sustainability focus at the centre of it and actually the the UK government who funds these projects often and other institutions like the EU as well always try and keep a focus of sustainability in those projects so they want to know how what we're doing is going to ensure that we don't have to keep coming back basically and that there's not a reliability on the NGOs to stay in that community and to continue providing support so what can be done to make sure that we're working with with the communities and working with yeah the staff in that that area um, to get to a point where uh, yeah they have sustainable well firstly sustainable funding from government because they may they may be able to be trained and be experts in the field but they still may not have the funding to be able to support their communities in the right way so to have the funding going forward but also yet yeah, to have the kind of knowledge and um, yeah, make sure that communities are all on the same page in terms of how they how they deal with certain health uh, issues.
3: Great. And so you said you'd, you'd worked these sort of five or six years in, in the finance sector, and then you made that decision uh, that you'd like to move across um, to, to NGOs. What, what was your motivation <clears throat> to do that? And was it specifically uh, sort of humanitarian NGOs or was it just sort of a broader desire to work in that sector?
1: Mm. Yeah, um, I would probably say a bit of both. Um, I think it it was something that was always uh, on my radar. I think growing up, uh, I remember seeing a lot of the like comic relief, um, kind of like annual fundraising programs and stuff they had on TV, and like UNICEF adverts and uh, like live aid events were like getting big when I was like a teenager, I suppose uh so i was always a little bit kind of confused as to why these countries were suffering so much and why there was like such widespread poverty when other countries had like billionaires <laughs> um so that was kind of underlying and i think um yeah i think that just grew o- over my adult life and when i had more time to kind of read into it in my spare time i uh, got to learn a bit more about the politics behind everything um And yeah, it it just got to a point where I felt like um, I had enough kind of independence uh, and um, obviously skills in what I'd achieved in the finance sector to be able to try and make that jump over to the international development sector. Um, I was was influenced by lots of different things and different people as well, Um, uh, but ultimately, yeah, at the beginning i just i didn't know too much about kind of how the difference in projects between humanitarian response and and general international development which is quite a long longer term concept um but i knew i wanted to go in that direction so um i started off by uh, doing some volunteering overseas actually with um education charity called street child that was kind of my first step into into understanding the whole sector, which was a massive kind of eye opener, um, because there's just there's so many different um, aspects to it that I really didn't know about before, and also uh, can be some damaging aspects to kind of the broader concept of international development, which puts this kind of power dynamic on um, the West, kind of coming to help poorer countries which doesn't really tell the whole story. So uh, there was a lot of learning behind that, that I did as well. Um, And this kind of issue that came up certainly in the last like decade or so, uh, with this kind of like white savior problem in development, uh, which was very much like how it came across in the media and how people were seeing Africa as just this like helpless continent, uh, which is such a ridiculous generalization and also doesn't capture why they're in the position they are today due to kind of like the last few hundred years of colonialism. Um, But yeah, so over time with the volunteering, I learned more and just became more and more fascinated. it, I then did a master's actually uh, in international development Um, in London. I did look at Portsmouth uh, for that course because they do have um, a body of international development. Uh, but I really wanted to live in London uh, at that point in time and well I still do now <laughs> um, so yeah it it didn't work out with Portsmouth in the end but um, yeah so I did my master's and then yeah I've just learned more and more since then and then the more you learn the more you realize how many different areas of development there are how many different potential like expertise areas you could focus on um, and I'm still kind of going through that process at the moment to be honest but definitely my my interest lies in humanitarian response
3: yeah it was interesting what you were saying about the whole white savior thing and apparently I've heard mm. um comic relief are are going to stop um sending mm. you know celebrities mm. over there and actually it's, it's mm. going to be local people who actually live and work in these communities who, who they're going to get to report on projects which you know will mm. obviously be much exactly better. yeah yeah because i mean they've obviously got f- far far more knowledge on what's going on than someone that's sort of flown in and flown out oh uh, yeah
1: exactly definitely um yeah and I, comic relief have actually changed a lot of that because we worked with them in my last organization they have started changing their kind of comms focus um not to be yeah like celebrities <laughs> coming in and like having a kickabout with some kids in like south africa or something uh, yeah, that, that shift is changing and I think the public started to realise as well what, what was wrong with that um, and it wasn't really representative. Um, so yeah, the whole sector has definitely started to shift away from that, which is really good. Um, but uh, in my opinion, the, the shift is still too slow and there's definitely this um, yeah kind of more uh, dependent concept behind international development, which is can be really damaging to progress
3: well actually that last comment of yours leads leads nicely into the to the next question about sort of the outcome <coughs> of your efforts and, and what would you like people to do differently? They've started to change, but what else do you feel needs to happen that could really make an impact and improve things um, <coughs> both with with the way you work and and the way it's you know helping people on the ground in those countries
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite um, it's quite a big existential <laughs> uh kind of question. Um, I think, in terms of from from the UK, I think the governments that we've had in the, in the last since I've been around, really, have not shown um, a real kind of commitment to actually addressing the root causes of why the world is like it is in terms of poorer countries and rich countries uh, and how we can actually improve that and change that um i think that even the sector that i work in now which does incredible work and constantly is yeah helping communities and without it like millions of lives would be lost um even 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 though it's still so vital i think um The whole concept of what we're doing of kind of going into these countries for two or three years having like trying to work with sustainability but really not addressing the main issue at hand which is that the governments of these countries like don't have much money at all like the countries are just chronically poor um and then we're providing like a very very small amount of money in the bit in the largest concept of things to look like we're kind of (laughs) look like we're doing a good job but really the overall picture isn't really changing that much and I think actually the public have become a bit disengaged with aid in the last decade or so because of their seeing the fact that nothing seems to change like these countries still live in chronic poverty um, and that's also an issue in terms of public engagement and fundraising Um, so I think I really think that in terms of like the leadership in this country the whole focus needs to shift um, away from this short-term international development we're going to go over and help these countries to like, why are they, why are they poor in the first place? Uh, and, and when you start looking and asking those questions, it kind of comes back to uncomfortable questions about uh, kind of corruption and the levels of inequality that governments allow to exist within this country and globally, and these these really large institutions that are supposedly uh, aiding poor countries, but they're actually just kind of holding them in, the, in, in massive amounts of debt um, and not allowing them to come out of poverty with this this kind of structural um, dynamic, where uh, big entities such as the World Bank are loaning money to these countries, but the interest rates are so high that. And the, the countries are so poor that they're never going to be able to break out of that cycle of, of debt and poverty. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of like narrative, the government never really discussed that. And then in, in terms of like their actual commitment to aid itself, it's, it's clearly falling off. For example, the, the international aid budget uh, was actually cut very, very very a couple of weeks ago. government cut the aid budget for the entire country to do international development projects by one third um, which they um, claimed was linked to Covid but then at the same time they were increasing the military budget by the most they've ever increased it in 30 years so I think there's issues of um, priorities within our leadership and I think it's similar in a lot of wealthy western countries as well and a, a lack of the ability to address the historical reasons as to why these countries uh are, are the way they are and the fact that really we kind of have a responsibility and a moral kind of debt towards these countries to to uh, kind of even out finances um and make reparations for the damage that we've caused in the last however many years
3: um yeah i i can i can totally see where you're coming from So I think we've we've probably looked at why, why, you know, one of the questions is, uh, you know, why is your work important to you um, as an individual? Um, I mean, is there anything you'd like to add on that front?
1: I mean, obviously, having been to, I've actually, yeah, I travelled to Sierra Leone. I've been there three times now uh, for work uh, and worked in Tanzania briefly as well. Um, And I did some travelling when I was still in the finance sector in Southeast Asia, which was my first experience of kind of being in global South countries and just had such amazing experiences and the people and the countries generally were just so overwhelmingly like welcoming and kind and before I'd been to those countries all I ever heard was like they're dangerous and they're hostile and you know don't let anyone scam you and all all of these things and and going there myself just completely changed that whole idea so that really is like motivated me to want to work in this sector more because um, despite the, the incredible like suffering that people in these countries live through, for example, in Sierra Leone, they've literally had a civil war and Ebola in the last, and, and also mudslides, which caused like, thousands of deaths in the last like couple of decades. Despite that, they're, they're still such amazing, like rich, cultural and friendly countries. Um, so that definitely was that's like a personal motivation for me as well. Um, especially living in like, yeah, one of the richest countries in the world. Um, it just feels like it makes sense um, to want to work in something like that. Uh, yeah, I think um, that's that's the motivation. And, and um, yeah, and also just because I have the opportunity to, like not everyone in the UK can choose their career and they don't have kind of enough financial stability to be able to make a career change but I did at that point in time so um if I had that choice like I thought I might as well take it. Mm,
3: absolutely what a great opportunity. Yeah. So do do you work with any other uh, Portsmouth alumni or have any involvement um in the university or with students or, or, or is there opportunities for them to get involved? Um, I haven't
1: had, uh, I haven't really had direct work with Portsmouth alumni. Um, but actually, I mean, hearing about the, the series of, um, like these magazines and podcasts that, that they're doing, is like, is really fascinating. And I'm definitely going to look into that more. Um, I w I haven't, I, I didn't have too much awareness about how much work they did in terms of development. Um, but yeah, this, this kind of work is really amazing and. I would be more than happy to work with um with future alumni uh, and yeah work with Portsmouth on that um I had had really good positive experiences of Portsmouth and I still have like my best friends from there and um yeah it's just a very it's like I have a fondness of it in my memory so it's definitely something that I would like to be connected with again in the future I think um yeah, but to this point, um, I haven't been working directly with the alumni.
3: No, I, I certainly think you know that, that you know the things you've told me today, you know, could be really um, inspirational to to, to students because I think, I, I guess you know, some people go in at, at an undergrad level thinking of this kind of work, but I guess your your degree was sort of quite standard um, in a lot of ways you know a lot of people do that and you think well you do that degree and you go and work in the finance sector and that's it and mm. thinking actually yeah, you can do that and that's great if that's what you want to do mm. wonderful but actually there's other stuff you can do with it as well you know so if you love sort of finance and maths and all of that kind of thing there was, mm. you know there's, there's more than more than a, a few options of, of what you can do with it definitely mm. yeah
1: I think it's also it's also incredibly hard to know what you want to do when you're 18 years old and, and I was so far off I had no idea and I think just the fact that I was good at maths at school made my decision for me but it, yeah it's good to know that once you get into your mid-20s you can change or whenever your mid-30s or 40s or 50s you can change your career path if you want to.
3: Yeah I think that's a great thing to think as well just because you've started off on one path doesn't mean that that's it forever more and, and you know you've got no choice yeah. in, in doing anything else.
1: Yeah.
3: So um Is there anything else about your work that we've sort of not covered that you think, you know, would be interesting to people?
1: I guess in in terms of um, something that's kind of relatable to everyone at the moment, which is COVID, (laughs) um, I think there there was an example that came up I saw earlier from The Guardian uh, that was perfect for kind of explaining uh, how the kind of global system is set up. So obviously we're getting vaccines Uh, in our country right now uh, which is amazing and I'm very excited about that Um, and they're rolling out next year Um, but uh, yeah just literally just before this call I saw an article that said that there would be no vaccines provided for poor countries until at least 2024 Um, and I know there would be some that probably argue well like you know the western countries developed the vaccines therefore we should be the first to have it but (laughs) <laughs> countries in the global south don't no. they don't they don't have the resources to be able to do that most of the time uh and yeah it, it was just a perfect example to me of how we always we, we don't yeah we don't really think about providing support it's not even in the conversation um so yeah that was just something that i thought i would mention
3: so you know, how did your time at portsmouth sow the seeds for what you're doing today Um, and help you get you where you are today was was international development something that or or, you know alternative things to do with finance something that was covered there or was it just a really great grounding um you Mm. know in in finance
1: yeah it, it was the former really I didn't I didn't really know much about international development when I did my undergrad um but yeah the course was a really good experience for me it helped me kind of become an adult um and the degree that i came out with and, and also like the process of going through the degree it helped me kind of there was a lot of really kind of smaller class seminar classes which you don't get in the london universities where i was kind of able to get involved in like group discussions and stuff like that and at that point in time i was incredibly bad at <laughs> i was very shy and like introvert and not very good at speaking and i think through those years of like having classes with friends that i made being able to discuss the topics that we were learning about kind of helped me grow my confidence. Um and yeah, obviously the degree was vital for me beyond being able to get a job in 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 the finance sector, not the finance sector, but in, in the private sector in London. And and that was that was the kind of yeah, the beginning of like my my journey to be able to discover to do what I wanted to do. Uh, and and finance is still useful today for that, uh, and the skills I learned, yeah, both in my degree and in my finance background, st- I still use every day now. So uh, yeah, it led me on my on my path for sure.
3: And and why? What what sort of led you to studying at Portsmouth? Why did you choose Portsmouth?
1: Mm. Yeah, I had uh, I actually took um, a gap year before I started. So I had some friends from school that went to Portsmouth that year. Uh actually two friends that were in the business school and one that was on my the course that I ended up studying. Uh and I went down and visited them and spoke to them loads and, and they they loved it. Um, and I had a really good time when I went to visit and the city just felt like um it was a really good fit because I, I, I came from like quite a rural area in the countryside. Um, so Portsmouth wasn't too big and overwhelming, it felt familiar, and um, the fact that you can walk around everywhere, especially with like the campuses are all so close together, it just felt um, it felt like a good fit, and, and I'd heard a lot of good things about the business school, um, so yeah, I went for it, um, and it definitely stood out against other cities that I went to do open days and stuff like that, it just felt like it was it was the right fit for me.
3: Excellent. It was a nice to get a, a sneak preview with friends before you go. It's very helpful. Yeah. It was
1: yeah. It was very helpful. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Since you've graduated, have you have you engaged with the university at all? Have they have you sort of kept in touch in any way, or um, have they got involved in anything at all?
1: Uh, like I said, when I was looking at doing a masters, I was looking at Portsmouth. Um, this was two, three years ago. Uh, I was looking closely at their course for international development to do to do my studies there, um, but in the end, because yeah, my living circumstances, I wanted to be based in London. It just didn't work out logistically for me. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a place that I trusted in terms of studying. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, in terms of like ongoing work with them, I haven't been engaged. Um, but. out of this hopefully i will be
3: (laughs) so what sort of opportunities could sort of do you see for for sort of working with the university for them to, to sort of connect with you and support what you're doing there's
1: there's a lot of universities that do collaborate with um ngos in terms of various types of research projects and things like that so that's something that's always an option yeah and in terms of like connecting with the alumni that's something that I would also be interested in and um yeah I guess I don't have too many ideas right now but it, um in terms of my current job I'm sure there are different ways that uh, I could work alongside Portsmouth um, But yeah I would need to spend a bit more time researching that
3: <laughs> yeah so sort of lo- looking back on your your time um at Portsmouth as an undergrad what sort of sticks out in your mind what, what do you think of when you look back? Actually
1: it sounds a bit cringe but I do picture the Portsmouth Business School um there was just a lot of like I feel like there was a lot of sunny days where I was just walking around campus and uh that whole like area of South Sea is I just remember it being quite spacious and sunny and um, always bumping into like other students that I knew uh because it was quite um it's quite a small kind of it's like a big town vibe, really. Um, so, yeah, I always I always remember, yeah, bright days walking around the city. Um, obviously, uh, some couple of my best friends were from, from Portsmouth. So um, that's obviously a major connection. And, um, yeah, also the student union was pretty good. Um, and Snakebite was great and very cheap. It's an essential, yeah.
3: And and uh, how about the uh, the teaching staff?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Like I mentioned before, that the, the uh, a lot of the seminars felt quite intimate. Like that there weren't huge groups of people, um, which I thought was really good. And and um, some of the lectures really stood out, and especially in those seminar settings, you really got to engage with them, like one on one, and have discussions with them. That kind of helped with kind of wider questions about the course and, um, aspects in it. Um, and yeah, just, um, I haven't had any like ongoing personal relationships with any of the lect- lecturers since I left, but I do, I do remember having good memories. Um, in particular, actually my dissertation tutor was, um, I can't remember her name now, but, uh, she was really inspiring actually. And I came in with like having no idea what I wanted to do for my dissertation and it actually ended up becoming like my strongest grade throughout the, all three years of the course even though it was something that yeah I started off terrified about um, so that was really good and, and you get those one-on-one sessions quite often for things like that. Um, I learned a lot through her and kind of her guidance.
3: Fantastic.
1: Yeah I guess yeah just to reiterate my point for other students that may come across this content, like follow what you're interested in doing mm-hmm. and um, also know that, yeah, at any point you can change change your career direction and also that your undergraduate degree doesn't necessarily have to dictate what you do for the rest of your life. Um, if, if your interests change or if your skills like, develop, it's not it. So um, yeah, keep that in mind, I guess. <laughs>
3: Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. It's been absolutely
0: fascinating talking to you today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Tackling hunger, responding to crises and fostering gender equality. Lawrence has carved his own path and we're proud it started here at Portsmouth. If you're enjoying this series, you can find more podcasts from the University of Portsmouth on this feed. If you'd like to get involved and make a few waves of your own, let us know by emailing alumni at port.ac.uk or click on alumni from the Portsmouth homepage.